Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Donald Ginther, who is Professor of Economics and the Director of the Institute for Policy and Social Research at the University of Kansas. Her research interests include scientific labor markets, gender differences in employment outcomes, wage inequality, scientific entrepreneurship, and children's education attainments. Welcome, Donna. Thank you. So let's start with one of your working papers, Women and STEM, um, that it sort of set the context for many of the other papers we want to talk about. So in this one, you say researchers from economics, sociology, and psychology, and other disciplines have studied the persistent underrepresentation of women in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, STEM. Uh, we argue that women's underrepresentation is concentrated in the math-intensive science fields of geosciences, engineering, economics, math, computer science, and physical science. Our analysis concentrates on the environmental factors that influence ability, preferences, and rewards for those choices. Yeah, so I can relate to this, Donna. I, I went to engineering school in, in India when there were only 1% women in the, in the entire university, and that was in the, in the mid to late 80s. Things have improved quite a bit since then, uh, but it is sort of persistent, isn't it? So, so, so what are you finding here in terms of the reasons for this persistent under-representation, under, under I should say? Well, it happens early in childhood. It happens in home, in, in the home. It happens in schools. Um, so what we find is that, you know, there's a, a, there's a belief that girls aren't good at math, either by parents or by teachers. And that this can set the stage for very different career outcomes. Um, Victor Levy did a very interesting study in Israel where he was looking at uh, math tests graded by the teacher who knows the students and a national math test that was randomly graded. Um, and the tests graded by the teacher always graded the girls lower in math relative to the national anonymous test. Right. So and you could measure the degree of bias of a teacher uh, against girls. And they found that uh, girls that encountered biased teachers were less likely to go on and take advanced math courses, major in math intensive STEM related fields and work in those occupations. So that's one example. There's another example from the psychology literature that shows that if you have a math anxious parent and that parent helps helps with math, then the, the kid picks up that anxiety and brings it forward. I mean, there are, there are myriad examples in the literature about how, you know, either within the family or in the schools, girls get treated differently when it comes to mathematics. Mm. 
so, so sort of the initial conditions, whether at home or uh, teachers in schools and so on, if they treat you differently early on, then that sort of sets the path, right? Uh, and those deviations, uh, albeit would be quite small initially, ultimately end up with a huge departure uh, between these two cohorts uh, and, you know, boys and girls. Right, right. Um, and I mean, and that can have long lasting career outcomes, right? Long lasting, long lasting outcomes. So, um, so, that, so that's pretty clear. So the initial conditions, um, I think from a sociology perspective, it's nearly impossible to correct that. <laughs> I think the bias appears to be uh, endemic in society. Um, and I don't know if there is anything from a policy perspective one could do about it. Um, Policy-wise, I think that it's important to, you know, talk to teachers. I mean, you can't really necessarily unpack what's going on in the household, but I do think it's important to talk to teachers and, and you know, let them know what the, the research shows and say, hey, you know, think about how you're treating your girls relative to your boys. I actually um, encountered a colleague, I had mentioned this to him, and he said, you know, that had a, you know, we used to be colleagues, he's a, at a different university. And I saw him recently, he's like, you know, your research on, on girls and math had a huge impact on, on my kids. And he had boy-girl twins, and the daughter was encountering challenges in her math classes. And so they put her into a, the, the kids into a school where they had single sex instruction on math and science. And once they did that, his daughter blossomed. No, you know, had no problems with her math tests or her math scores. And, and I believe is gonna be pursuing a, a math intensive degree in college, right? So, um, I mean, that's, that's, a one, that's an anecdote. <laughs> But I mean, it it can show how that having that information can inform both parents and teachers to address these issues. There's also a, a body of research that we cite in that paper that shows that norms within a region of the country, right, also affect math performance. So the math gap is much lower in the Northeast than it is in the Southeast. In the Southeast, you have more traditional gender norms, and in the Northeast, you have more egalitarian norms. Mm. So it's a very yeah. complex uh, uh, relationship. Yeah, so, so how does it uh, internationally? Um, so I would imagine uh, if egalitarian views uh, are positively correlated with um, lower bias between genders, I would imagine Scandinavian countries uh, might show much less. Is that what you're finding in the data? Well, it's interesting. Uh, I, I encountered a paper in PNAS about this. There's a, there's a, so in these very egalitarian countries, uh, a lot of, there's even less majoring in math intensive STEM fields. <laughs> um, and so trying to understand what's driving that, you know, maybe preferences. Uh, but it's uh, even if there are egalitarian values, uh, girls may be less likely. In some uh, uh, countries, uh, Islamic countries, where Islam dominates, there's single seconds education, and you see that girls outperform boys in tests of math. Mm. So I mean, it, it's uh, it's a very rich and interesting and complex relationship. Yeah, I was also thinking, you know, uh, Asian countries like Korea, Japan, and India to some extent, where uh, at least where the place that I grew up in India, there's a lot of focus on education. And, and so at least primary to high school education. So everybody went to school that was expected and everybody took everything that was also expected. So in some sense, this uh, prescriptive systematic focus on education might reduce the bias, but then 
is that is that a good thing? I'm specifically thinking about Japan, you know, some some country like that, especially because you're finding a difference between let's say Scandinavia and the Muslim countries. That 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 yeah. seems quite an interesting concept. Right, right. Um, you know, um, Japan uh, is very different with respect to women. Um, you know, Japan is a country that. Um, uh, the, pop the birth rate is below replacement, you know, populations are declining. They need more women in the labor force, but they don't have the cultural norms and the institutions that facilitate that, right? So, um, you know, if you're a woman, a young woman going to college in Japan, and you're probably, and you look at the future and you want to have a family, you're probably not want, going to want to invest in a, a STEM intensive degree, right? Where your skills depreciate. So, I mean, each con country, I mean, even in the United States, each region has differential impacts. So it's a very localized phenomenon. Hmm. And, and I think you, you talk about this or other papers that women ultimately uh, have kids, um, maybe increasingly less in the modern world, but generally speaking. Uh, and that is a huge discontinuity. And so any investment that you make into education have overall um, lower returns in the horizon between men and women. So the, the investment returns that you expect from education for a woman because of this discontinuity is lower, right? Well, it depends, right? If you're in a society that has, you know, affordable childcare and paid family leave, then you can stay attached to the labor force and continue to earn that return. But if all of the caregiving responsibilities fall on the woman, then, you know, most of them will have to leave the labor force at some point to take care of their kids. And that's going to affect their investment decisions in human capital. So that is some policy implications. So maybe even tax policy in the sense that if a country wants to sort of maximize productivity, um, they have to take this discontinuity into account till we figure out how to how men can get pregnant, which could which could be a, a long time. Right. Uh, we, we have this differential um, aspect, right? So it could be an overall policy question for a country. Well, I, I think it's a policy question we're dealing with in the United States right now. Um, there was a, I was just looking before we got on, I was looking at a New York Times article about working mothers. Um, and they were quoting some economists that I know. Uh, shout out to Misty Haganis, his work. She's a co-author of mine, and she was featured in today's New York Times talking about uh, mothers having to work during the pandemic. Um, and, you know, our childcare uh, is not publicly subsidized widely in the United States. And it's, you know, we did a study in Kansas that showed that it costs more to put your infant in daycare than it does to send your 18-year-old uh, to college at the University of Kansas, right? So that gives you an idea of the financial burden of, of childcare. And, you know, if you do not have adequate childcare, um, you're not going to have full labor force participation of your women. And that's going to create a drag on your economy. And part of the labor shortage I think we're facing right now, part but not all, can be traced back to, you know, the childcare crisis because a lot of childcare providers closed during the pandemic and haven't reopened. Those that have remained open are having trouble finding workers and passing higher costs on to families who, in some cases, just simply can't afford it. Hmm. What we need is uh, a university for infants, Donna. Um, <laughs> that, that, might, <laughs> that might make it easier. Uh, so, so in this paper, you also talk about this is a sort of a little bit of a different view. Uh, you see here our results are consistent with preferences and psychological explanations for the underrepresentation. What do you mean by that? Preferences and psychological explanations? Well, so preferences meaning um, there's a, a body of research sort of like people versus things and women gravitate towards people focused activities where men are more thing oriented. And so 
if you're interested in people, you might major in psychology more than in economics, where you would be interested in abstract models. So that would be how I would, you know, show the difference between in how preferences may play a role in what we're seeing. Yeah, I mean, there's this sort of an evolutionary basis to it, right? So in one of my books called Flexibility, I argued that right from the beginning, 200,000 years ago, women managed very complex human organizations. They were the center of that management process, whereas men tend to have more of a process view. They go out and hunt and, you know, those types of things. Uh, and that is not really amenable to management of very complex societies, a lot of non-linearities, a lot of uncertainties. So I, I'm sort of overgeneralizing this, but in general, men appear to be very process oriented in my view. Um, I, I mean, I think that's borne out by the choices they make with respect to what they study and the occupations that they gravitate towards, right? Yeah, so so you, you are looking at sort of a cross-sectional data here, and you're saying women have a preference for human-related um, activities, uh, societal activities, whereas men, and thinking about engineering, economics, uh, two of my fields, <laughs> uh, and I love models. Uh, building models um, have a lot more utility than interacting with with uh, humans, in which case, at the end of the day, they will gravitate toward in, in that direction, right? That is, that's what we are finding in the data. Right, right. And so that's problematic in some ways. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, go ahead, sorry. Uh, no, I, I, I agree. But, you know, I think that there are, are, are women who, you know, are analytical and, you know, like these conceptual uh, worlds, like economics, uh -huh. um, and there are men who, you know, specialize in psychology and sociology. So I mean, uh, yeah, a world in which uh, people can enter these fields and we can have this diversity of thought, I think, leads to greater research understanding. So, would you say that entry costs? or the, you know, the entry barriers to a profession like economics and engineering uh, are lower for men compared to women. And so you have to put in a lot more investment to go into those fields. Is that, is that what we're seeing in the data? Well, I mean, I don't, I don't know that the entry costs are lower. I mean, the entry, I mean, you have to take the GRE, you have to have, you know, the same math curriculum in order to get in, right? Uh, but <clears throat> the number of women at risk of being, you know, who have taken that mathematical curriculum that would allow them to get a PhD in economics is much lower than the number of men. And so trying to explain what's driving that investment decision prior to trying to get a PhD is really important, right? And that's part of what we were trying to do in those series of papers is to say, hey, you know, you know, we a lot of people look at majors, PhD, matriculation, graduation, uh, showing up in academia, and a lot of that, you know, getting to that college major, a lot of that happens way earlier. And we bring that research to bear. So, so going back to this preferences idea and going back to what we are talking about in terms of initial conditions, do we find a, a high correlation between parents who are technical to their um, daughters going into STEM fields? I, there is some relationship. <clears throat> if you have a parent in STEM, you're more likely to major in STEM. We're more likely to go into STEM. So, so that also reinforces. So, if you, this is almost seems orthogonal to me, <laughs> uh, Dora. I don't know if I'm thinking about this correctly. So, the preference axis is basically saying women prefer human oriented uh, activities, right? And men prefer more things, as you say, uh, oriented activities. 
that is sort of orthogonal to this initial condition idea where you know if the parents are in stem then the the daughters get into stem so so how do you sort of compare between those two effects in uh, in what you're seeing in the data well i think it's really complicated right i mean part of this is taking you know this paper is looking at the literature and kind of trying to make sense of the literature and uh, and organize the literature and the findings in a consistent way right um so you know in order to like uh to do the research on this topic you really need to divide and conquer and look at different parts of the life course and figure out what's going on um and so i guess it, it you know i wouldn't say that we explain everything right you can't but we do have you know a con you know what this paper is identified as a set of consensus arguments coming out of the economics literature mostly about why women are underrepresented so um i think you know the preferences i mean the results are consistent with preferences but there may be things that happened early on that prevented that shaped those preferences right mm. right uh and so teasing that apart is really hard and you know it's even harder to do in economics these days with the emphasis on causal analysis because there's not some policy shift that you can identify the causal effect of of uh you know how that shapes your preferences i mean we don't really have a good model in my mind of how preferences are formed and you know when i was in graduate school if you think about preferences they were supposed to be immutable right you know preferences don't change <laughs> that makes our models tractable but i i know that over time my preferences have changed so you know I, that sort of introduces a, a different type of social science when you think about you know how preferences might evolve over time how experiences shape preferences and things of that nature yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, if you look at the last 25 years, technology has advanced so much. So if you're reading anything related to technology today, there's a lot more data than, let's say, you know, 25 years ago, 30 years ago. Your preferences might have been more fashioned by people close to you, like your parents or your teachers. But now Google can possibly <laughs> give you a preference, yeah. Right. And that's quite different. And so do we have any data on sort of dropout rates? So I'm thinking, you know, uh, kids going into undergraduate school in STEM related fields, boys and girls, is there a differential between dropout rates between the two? Um, I think that uh, young women are more likely to leave a STEM degree. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm not as familiar with that literature. It's not coming to mind right now. Do you, do you have a speculation why that's the case? I, again, it's, it's very complicated, right? <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, it may be that the coursework isn't, uh, you know, something that they thought it, thought it would be. It could be, um, you know, they're not, they don't, they're not taking classes with their friends or look around and they're the only young woman in the classroom, right? You know, there it could be a, a we do know uh, that there are role model effects, that if a, a young woman in college is assigned to a, a female instructor in a male dominated profession, that nudges them in the direction of pursuing that major. Um, so if you, you know, it doesn't affect men, by the way, if, if a, a young man is uh, taught by a woman, it doesn't affect his propensity to measure one way or the other. But if a woman can see herself in an instructor, uh, she may be more likely to pursue that major. So that, you know, is, gives you a policy sense for why you should have a diverse faculty, right? Yeah, nobody wants to go to out of school with a bunch of nerds. That, that's very clear. Right. And um, and so this idea that if you have your own gender 
in the faculty, um, your preferences get reinforced and your chance of dropout is lower. It's actually quite interesting. So it means that there's some sort of a stress in the academic environment when you're swimming, let's say, you know, up the, <laughs> up the river or whatever the right term would be, uh, you decided to go into STEM, but then you find that it is very, very male dominated, both in the classroom and in the academic faculty, then all fun goes goes from it. <laughs> you know, even right. if it's not just yes, yeah. Yeah. It, it just you may not see yourself in the environment. Right. Yeah. It's really interesting. Um so so I want to go into a couple of your other papers. You had a, a um a reasonably old one, Race, Ethnicity and NIH Research Awards. Uh, you've seen this paper from 2011. We investigated the association between the between the US National Institutes of Health, NIH, R01 applicants, self-identified race or ethnicity, and the probability of receiving an award by using data from NIH Impact 2 grant database, the Thomson Reuters, Web of Sciences, and other sources. While the proposals with strong priority scores were equally likely to be funded regardless of race, we find that Asians are four percentage points and Black or African-American applicants are 13 percentage points less likely to receive NIH investigative initial research funding compared to, compared to whites. That's really interesting. Um, and so there are two things here. You say here, proposal with strong priority scores were equally likely to be awarded, to be funded. The, the next step down from that, there's a lot more noise in it, sounds to me, right? There's a lot more uncertainty. Um, so, so, I mean, the NIH has a very standardized review process. So your proposal comes in and uh, it's initially reviewed by the study section. And some proposals aren't competitive and those don't really receive a score. And that's about half. So they, they're not scored. And of those scored, then they're reviewed uh, and discussed and given an overall priority score. And so what we found in that study and a, a follow-up study in 2018 is that um, the score determines whether or not you get money. Proposals by Black or African-American investigators were less likely to receive a score and received lower scores. Um, our 2018 paper, uh, which you know redid the analysis with better measures of publications, found that the number of publications and the quality of the publications uh, were lower among Black or African American applicants, and this explained about half of the funding gap. So the quality of application. So, so they I don't know anything about this, Don. I'm just wondering. Um, so there's a technical quality question, and then there is sort of a cosmetic <laughs> quality question. So if the proposal is coming out of you know some top five university, there is some cosmetic expectation of that proposal. So if you control for that, do you find any difference? I'll find the gap. Yeah, I mean, we we controlled for everything we could think of, <laughs> um, and so you know, 2011, we could explain a third of the gap, um, not a third, uh, you know, a small so three percentage points of the 13 percentage point gap we could explain. Um, we explained half of it with better measures of prior scientific productivity, um, so number of publications, the journals that they are published in, uh, the strength of your co-authorship networks and things of that nature. Um, interestingly, it didn't end up in being published, but we found the gap was being for black scientists was being driven for the basic science, you know, the, the bench science fields. If you look at like psychology, which is also funded by the NIH, black investigators had a slight advantage or no disadvantage. So it was really within the narrow fields of the of the bench science that where you saw the gap the most. 
I mean, it's really puzzling. I mean, I, I would imagine when the NIH uh, evaluators sit down and look at proposals, they're not thinking about race, I would imagine. <laughs> and, and, race. Uh, so, you know, there was a study that came out last year by uh, NIH people at the Center for Science Review. And what they did was they took proposals uh, that had been reviewed, then they anonymized them and had them re-reviewed. And they, they found that the black investigator scores didn't change. But the anonymous uh, reviewed white proposals fell. Their scores got worse. So there might be some sort of like math, you know, some advantage to being well known or seeing those names associated with the research that, you know, they get the benefit of the doubt or they get higher scores if you know that person, right? Or if you're familiar with their work. And once you anonymize it, then the actual impact is lower. So I, I you know, and then I saw another uh, paper at the American Economic Association this past winter, which found a similar effect with respect to publication review. And this was looking at men and women, that when it was anonymized, uh, men scored lower than when it was not anonymized. So it may be that instead of bias against a particular group, it could be bias in favor of the majority group, which I think, I mean, that's really an interesting perspective on it. I mean, there's just two studies that have found that, but, you know, it, it's got me thinking, where else is that showing up, right? Yes, really interesting. So uh, I'm thinking, Donna, here, you know, uh, the language that you use in your proposals Maybe there's some sort of secret handshake process going on here. There's, there's another paper about uh, about that. Um, Kolev uh, and co-authors have a working paper where they were looking at the Gates Foundation uh, review process. And those were all anonymous. But uh, proposals by females scored worse. Mm. Um, and uh, I thought that was odd given that you don't see a, dis a gender gap in biomedical research funding at the NIH, right? So there's, you know, men and women are equally likely to get funded in NIH these days. That wasn't true in the past, but it is true now. All right, so why is it at the Gates Foundation? And um, if you dig into how the Gates Foundation does its review, they, they send like, you know, 50 to 100 proposals to a reviewer. These are three to five pages long. And I imagine that after you've read about 10 of those, when somebody says, this is groundbreaking, revolutionary, you know, <laughs> seeing all of these super words, right. kind of overselling the results, uh, which is also seemed to be correlated with being a male investigator, um, that rational inattention of going over 100 proposals may have disadvantaged women's proposals, which were more Precise, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, men are, men are always very confident in their capabilities. I, I have noticed that in um, in presentations in um, in literature. So, so there might be. You know, I'm thinking, Donna, here. If I deploy an AI agent mm -hmm. on these proposals and train it using historical data, that AI agent will be very efficient in picking up men, white men proposals because historically that is what dominated right. the data set. Uh, I mean, we have similar things going on in healthcare. There was a insurance company in New York uh, had an AI program that uh, showed that African-Americans requires required less healthcare, less uh, care in general, because in the past they got less care. <laughs> right. <And so, laughs> Uh, so those types of things, I mean, human brain is not substantially different from a computer. It is an accumulation of biases, I would argue. And so that is really what we're finding, right? I mean, so even the even if the proposals are anonymized, what you're saying is that there are things in the proposals that sort of tells you um, 
you know, uh, what your bias should confirm. Uh, and so it's it's an anonymization is not going to work because you already have. Well, so I mean, to be clear, the anonymization didn't find huge discrepancies, right? Mm. It, it didn't find evidence of bias per se. It, it found movements and scores, um, but um, the the problem with anonymizing science is that science is small, right? In different, especially different areas of science, yes. you tend to know everybody who works in your area, right? <laughs> um, and so, you know, especially if you're an established investigator, people know can tell it's your science, even if they go through and like <laughs> mark out all your self citations or whatever, right? So it, it's really hard to anonymize science in the first place. But the, I mean, the, you know, I, I have a paper um, that shows the peer review process is, does a pretty good job at, at, at NIH, does a good job of identifying good science and future scientists. Yeah, I'm a proponent of, I, I want to get your perspective on this, uh, Donna, this is not in your research, but I'm a proponent of using artificial intelligence in making these decisions, because I argue that AI will be a lot less biased than a typical human. <laughs> uh, what, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, that would be a hard problem, right? So how can you, I mean, I give a, I give the, in a NIH proposal, I give a data preliminary results, right? I think it would be really hard for an AI system at this time to read a data table and all the nuances in the footnotes in the text about what that data actually shows. Um, to, you know, because that preliminary, that pilot study is going to be the difference between funding and not funding, right? So, I mean, I think that an AI system can identify fields of science, can identify, you know, sort of like what the outcomes of the proposed outcomes are. Um, I don't, yeah, I, I I guess I'm not sufficiently familiar with the AI, an AI approach to be able to say, well, this could do it. Um, I mean, it could probably do a good job of that first review of identifying, you know, which proposals should be discussed and which shouldn't. Yeah. But then what you'll get is you'll get people who figure out, who hack the AI and sort of <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> to modify the proposal system, right? Yeah, I mean, it can only work if you sort of redesign the templates. Um, and so, as you say, so the first review, the real question is the so what question, not, not really the precise data question. Right. And so all the, you know, cosmetics around is groundbreaking, it's going to save the world from everything. Right. All that can be completely eliminated <laughs> from, from review. And then you can, you can look at what's the input, what's the process, what's expected output, what's uncertainty around that, that could give you a score of some sort. And as you say, that that could be a screening process, perhaps. Right. Right. I mean, given the amount of people proposing these days, having a screening mechanism, I think, would be really useful. Right. Yeah, and I can do that, potentially. Yeah, it'd be a very interesting study, Donna. If you, if you have some sort of a non-human screen, and then humans get involved, it will be very interesting to see if that substantially reduces the bias. And if you find that, that could be really interesting, right? Well, so, you know, I, you know, I'm not sure that there's, I mean, the, the anonymization studies yeah. that I've cited don't find a lot of evidence of bias, right? Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure that, uh, you know, bias is driving all the results. Again, you know, I, I think, you know, Think about the whole life course, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, access to networks, access to support throughout one's career early on can set the stage for later career outcomes. And I I can think of a world where, you know, black investigators didn't have the same advantages as white investigators throughout their, you know, college and graduate school and postdoctoral experiences. You know, we actually see careers starting to diverge right around the postdoc, 
<clears throat> where they have uh, the same number of publications but lower citations. Mm. And so that kind of just that small disadvantage just accumulates over time. And there is a very critical window mm -hmm. uh, around that time, right? That if you cannot climb out of that, then it, it becomes really difficult. Um, so, so you're going to follow up on this, uh, Donna, recently reflections on race, ethnicity, and NIH research awards. And so you're, you're quite, kind of going back and looking at the data. So I think you mentioned this already. Did you find anything new in the, in, in the latest analysis? Um, no, I actually have a proposal right now sitting at the National Institutes of General Medicine. Um, it's going to go into a second review. Um, and you know what we're going to look at is um, looking at faculty at research universities by race, uh, and then looking at uh, whether or not they're equally likely to get promoted conditional on their grants and publications. Mm -hmm. And looking at uh, whether or not conditional on having a, a, their first R1, do they get a renewal, right? And then we'll have information on where they're located, what science they're doing, um, and you know their their research history so that that's my next project um but i'm waiting on the decision on that one <laughs> yeah hopefully that rises to the top donna uh, yeah. <laughs> so um so so i want to get into another topic you have a few pe few papers around this um gender race and academic career outcomes does economics mirror other disciplines. Uh, you see here the textbook model of the labor market posits that workers are paid their marginal products. In the setting, equally productive workers should be paid and promoted at the same rate. While in the general labor market, we are able to observe individual education, industry, occupation, and earnings. In most cases, it's difficult to link individuals' capital investments and productivity outcomes. So you say my research has focused on academic labor markets because capital in the form of federal research funding and output in the form of publications and citations can be linked to individuals to yield new findings about academic careers and knowledge production. That's really interesting. So this is a little bit less uncertain. You can, the, the outputs are very easily measurable. Right. The inputs are as well. And so the black box in this case is a little bit little bit of a gray box, uh, but in the, as you say, in the labor markets in general, it's really difficult to control for these inputs and outputs. Um, and so, so, so what do you find in this more, let's say less uncertain input and output process in the academic markets? Well, I mean, so that, that general set of research questions kind of motivated the work that we did at NIH because, um, you know, we were linking publications uh, to individuals and looking at the impact on, on whether or not they get research funding, which then feeds into more publications. Um, so I think that you know, what we really want, you know, I was interested, I came at this research because I'm interested in do women's and men's careers differ? You know, this was me as an assistant professor wondering whether or not, you know, women are equally likely to get promoted. <laughs> because we have an up and out system or out system in in academia um and so that's kind of how i started down this path of looking at you know how uh your productivity is rewarded within academia because that's what the model says you know the people who publish the most papers or the highest impact papers or some mix of the two should you know receive the biggest rewards Right. So that's what that that's kind of what I've been trying to look at from various angles. And, you know, we don't really understand how people are promoted. Right. Academia has a very linear promotion process, mm. which also makes it easier than, you know, how do you understand who's promoted in a software firm? Right. 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 Is it are the people who are bad at coding the, the ones who <laughs> be managers? No, we, we typically have two different tracks. We have a technical track and a business managerial track. Right. And so people tend to gravitate toward either one of those. In academics, you have only one track, 
So that makes it easier. Right. That reduces uncertainty. Right. Right. I mean, so, I think that you know, computer science to the extent that people post code on GitHub, right? You could see <laughs> what they're doing. You know, you could look at their productivity, but then, a, then that's where you would need the AI to see whether or not the code actually works and is is a real contribution, right? Yeah, I mean, they're getting close to not needing humans to code either. The AI could code it itself. Right. And so we are entering a pretty dangerous uh, situation in terms of human productivity question. Uh, but in the academic arena, I want to ask you, I know a few research universities that put a lot of focus on the number of papers being published. Um, so if I just count the papers, that's one sort of an output. Right. Um, and how do you control for the quality of papers? That's a million dollar question. <laughs> Seriously, um, you know, you could think of it as citations, right? But this is where you know modeling would come in. So, who cites what paper, right? Um, if I'm doing a, a, a literature review, then I want to find all the papers on this topic and I'll cite all of those papers. But if you're doing a research project, you know, do you cite only your friends? <laughs> do you cite only your advisor <laughs> and your advisor's <laughs> students? Uh, you know, I I. I color outside of disciplinary lines. I do demo demographic research. Demographers cite everybody. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, oh my goodness. The citations they expect are, are quite high, uh, high, whereas economists, you know, you look at the papers in this field in the last 10 years, you don't cite anything before that, right? <laughs> so, you know, understanding, you know, and that should be factored in to, uh, quality, right? And uh, we found in our 2018 paper that uh, the impact factors of journals were very predictive, right? The, an impact factor weighted um, measure of publications. Well, it, you, need, you know, it kind of makes sense, right? Because you don't see a person's citations when you get a biosketch for a proposal review. But you do see the journals and you say, oh, science, cell, nature. Yeah, you've, you've published in all the big ones, so you're good, right? So uh, journals are, are kind of a proxy measure of quality for, for publications. Mm. But then, as you say, if there's a secret handshake going on, we, we see high concentrations of Nobel laureates in a few universities um, and publications in major journals are also very highly concentrated. So there is a lot of a larger question where there's a secret handshake <laughs> process going on right, in, right. in academics. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and so that that's a you know that's a, a real issue. But you know, so how do you decide what to cite, right? And we know citations count for, you know, the quality of a university is measured by the number of citations of the faculty or the quality of the researcher is measured by the number of citations, right? But is that a is that a, an accurate measure? I mean, and if you if you go down the the uh, course of study of looking at what scientometricians do, it's like there's as many different measures of quality. <laughs> As there are people studying in this area, so it's a it's a real open question, um, and I but I think it you know we need it for understanding a contribution in science, right? Yeah, I mean it's just the country club effect. Um, if you're part of a country club, you have a lot of country club friends, and if you're not part of the country club, you don't have country club friends typically, and right. so the same thing happens in academics, I think. Um, it's not as crass, but it is generally the same concept. Oh yeah, I mean, and there's a hierarchy, right? <laughs> and so, so I want to uh, go into a slightly different topic. So does mentoring increase the collaboration networks of female economists and evaluation of the cement randomized trial? So, you, so looking at here, if, if uh, female economists get, uh, get mentored, um, 
does it actually improve their productivity and their ability to get uh, get promoted and things like that? Right. So what do you find? Well, so there's a series of papers. What we found was, so this mentoring workshop has been going on since 2004. And it featured between 2004 and 2014 random assignment to the workshop. So uh, you were, you had about five people in your subject area and two senior mentors, and you spent two days with this group of people. And because of random assignment is kind of a, a random shock to your network right? Because you got put into this group of about 40 or 50 women that you may not have encountered before. Uh, so it's a nice experiment from the perspective of did this experiment, did this help women in their careers, one, and two, uh, we did a study of the mechanism. Well, we found that women at top 100 institutions worldwide were more likely to get tenure, but people at lower ranked institutions were not which is a bit troubling. Yeah. Uh, we found that they published more papers and they published more top five papers. So there are five journals that are the top five. And so we found that they were significantly more likely to publish top five. There's marginally significant impact on getting research funding. Um, but overall, it had a, a large positive impact on their career outcomes. So the question is, how can a two and a half day workshop have such huge effects? So our hypothesis, we know that they published more papers. So we thought, well, maybe they're finding new co-authors at this workshop. This is actually a graduate student of mine was very interested in networks and how networks. And I'm like, well, you know, there's not like exogenous shocks to networks, except for here, this experiment is an exogenous shock to the network. So you can go to the publications and you can look at their publications after they've been mentored and see, well, what happens to their networks. And we were surprised in that very few women co-authored with each other. They, I mean, they had this experience, they liked this experience, they were more successful and their networks got larger, but it wasn't with other women at the conference. So we interpreted that as indicating that there was tacit knowledge provided at this conference that uh, empowered the women who received the mentoring treatment to expand their collaborative networks. And generally, if I understand this correctly, Donna, generally uh, the collaborative networks are beneficial, right. both in terms of publication, in terms of career. And so, would you say, is that a deficiency in, in women academics? They, they don't, either they don't have the time or the preference for large networks? I think it's, um, it's because, you know, you know, there may be 30% of the women in the economics profession are female, yeah. but in my department, it's me and one other woman, right? So we're, you know, if you look at your local context in academia, there aren't a lot of people who look like me, right? But if you bring them together and you give people an opportunity to get to know people who look like them and doing the same things that they're doing, uh, it's gonna, we think that that sort of tacit knowledge of being able to refer to each other you know, for advice and even senior mentors in, at the program to ask them for advice about how to manage their careers. It, it empowered the, those women and, and contributed to their success. Hmm. Yeah, I also regretted not going to academics, Donna. I thought academics was pure. Everybody is trying to advance knowledge and that that's that's that. Uh, but it's not quite that easy, is it? <laughs> no, uh, academia is a social you know, it's a society, right? And it has, uh, it's it's uh, very, um, it's, you've got a lot of people who have, you know, lifetime employment, who really like their lifetime employment <laughs> and don't like changes, right? I mean, I thought that academia would be a very liberal environment. <laughs> and 
it, it, but if you think of the employment relationships, in many ways, it's a very conservative environment. Mm. Because they don't want to, <laughs> they want to do what they do. Yeah. They it's very hierarchical. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, they don't have bosses. They can do their research. They can do their teaching. And, and nobody can really tell uh, a tenured faculty member what to do. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit like a corporation where, I mean, in a, in a company, we have these types of people too, you know. Um, they've been there for 30 years and nobody's going to fire them type people. Right. And um, it is you know, somewhat inefficient sometimes <laughs> to have those types of people because you can fire them. Uh, so, yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting, the structural question for academics, you know. So if, if you were to create a new university and you want to really break the, the status quo, how would you set it up? How, 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 will they, how, <laughs> how will you hire? How will you promote? How will you measure? How would you provide incentives? What are the things that you learn from all these research? Well, I, I mean, I think that, so um, I, have, I have a 10 year story that has, I didn't send you this uh, research paper, but because uh, it's relatively new, but I, I was doing this study on the social safety net. Uh, and Kansas, the state of Kansas has put restrictions on the social safety net. And I presented some data uh, from preliminary research and and then uh, the governor's office didn't like the data so they called the university and complained right and I'm like thank god I have tenure right <laughs> <laughs> that's the beauty of it yeah <laughs> right I mean so I I'm uh, I'm fully vested in this tenure process um but you know I'm also an economist I believe in incentives so there are ways to, you know, there are ways to use pay and recognition to incentivize behavior or to incentivize people to find a better match in terms of what they're wanting to do if they don't want to do research anymore, right? No, I'm a big fan of the tenure process, I, I have to say. I mean, you know, the academics I talk to are all very comfortable with what they're doing, which is quite important to advance knowledge, I think. Right, right. I mean, uh, you know, back when I was doing this work on gender in the economics profession, there were very few people doing it. Um, and so I was kind of off by myself in a little corner. Um, and then now the now there's a lot of it being done in the profession, which I think is great. But, you know, people could have viewed that negatively had I not had tenure, right? Uh, so you need... You know, some research is not popular, but it nevertheless is important. And so you need some sort of guarantee within the system to be able to produce that work. Um, but at the same time, you also need to reward good behavior and and dissuade bad behavior. Yes, I want to finish up with your uh, recent paper, which is very topical, different topic, association of mask mandates and COVID-19 case rates, right. hospitalizations and deaths in cancers. So you said that the study examined the association between mask mandates in Kansas counties and COVID-19 cases, hospitalization and deaths. The Kansas order that took effect on July 3rd, I, I believe it's in 2021, I would think, right? Uh, uh, 20. 2020? Yeah. 2020 was adopted by only 15 counties and 68 counties did not have a mandate through October. And the second mask mandate under uh, order took effect in November 25 and 40 additional counties adopted it. So you're finding a distinct difference in sort of mortality, hospitalization and so on between uh, counties that adopted mask mandates and those who did not, right? And I mean, that's a lot. I mean, I, I don't know if this is in the research journal. There's a longer time question, um, which is, you know, this idea that if we slow it down, uh, we can escape it. And that has been sort of, it has been a very difficult thing to pin down because we have this many, many waves of COVID-19 happening all around the world. Right. And so, so what is what is your take on that uh, from a policy perspective? 
Well, at, during that time period, we didn't have the vaccine, right? Yeah. And we had hospitals that were, uh, you know, bulging with patients and, uh, you know, people were dying because of overextended hospitals, right? So I think that at that time, the mask mandate was sound uh, public policy if you wanted to uh, allocate your scarce hospital resources. And we showed that it was effective, right? Um, you know, COVID is just, uh, I mean, it's a classic pandemic where you have wave after wave after wave. The vaccine, uh, you know, you know, we get this wonderful scientific discovery of the mRNA vaccines, but, you know, we don't have the years to study it like we would have for like measles, right? Uh, so as a result, uh, you know, you're having to update your information in real time. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, we were vaccinated. My whole family was vaccinated in October. We all got sick, right? <laughs> Despite being vaccinated because they hadn't interpreted the data to say, oh, after six months, you need a, a booster. So, you know, um, I think that at the time, the mask mandate was really sound policy. Um, I was traveling when the courts threw out the mask mandate for public transportation. So I was away. <laughs> I wore a mask on the airplane. Everybody was wearing a mask on the airplane when I left. <laughs> Very few of us were wearing masks on the plane when I came back. <laughs> um, you know, uh, but uh, after having had a whole family with COVID and uh, a husband who was hospitalized twice, you know, had to go to the ER twice with, you know, COVID pneumonia and real pneumonia, um, I, preventing it, <laughs> I pay a lot of money to prevent it, right? Uh, after having, even though we, we didn't quite prevent it from happening. If, you know, if the vaccine truly prevented you from getting, for, prevented mortality, you know, um then it, it was worth every penny right so yes. i'm a big fan of masking so you know uh, uh, so last three years i haven't had a cold i typically get a cold every year right um and so i'm going to continue to mask uh, even even after covid completely goes away i have an excuse now when <laughs> 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 i get on a train or an airplane People won't, you know, look at me as a weird guy, um, because mask allows you to to sort of not get common diseases. You know, it's all airborne diseases, most of them. Right. Now, um, you know, masking was tremendously is tremendously effective. Um, yeah. So uh, and, you know, we showed it with Kansas data. There was a randomized controlled trial uh, that showed its effectiveness. Um, I, forget, I think it was in Bangladesh. Um, you know, it's really hard to run a randomized controlled trial with masking because you can't, like, observe people wearing a mask at home or whatever. But I would never trust a doctor who wanted to operate on me who didn't wear a mask. <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah. Yes, I want to end on a, a sort of a philosophical question. So STEM used to be very sort of deterministic engineering oriented field. And we are increasingly removing humans from those processes. You know, we can design buildings, we can create cars, airplanes without using humans because computers can do a lot of those things. So we might find STEM to be more human-oriented activity in the future, uh, that women might be more equipped to, to really take on than men. Men are, you know, model builders, equation solvers, differential <laughs> equations, whatever. Uh, none of those things are needed anymore because we can deploy computers to do all of those. So, so do you see sort of a gender switching in STEM? Well, it may be a gender convergence. Conversion, yeah. Yeah, I, I do think that we need those models, right? We need, you know, that abs 
the sort of like the model building, the ana analytics, the, that sort of manipulation of the environment type of work. But we also, for science to realize its full potential for society, we also need to have the society part of it, right? Uh, you know, part of the failure in public health in, during COVID was scientists not really thinking about society when they were trying to, you know, convince people to do the right, you know, to to protect people around them. Um, and so social science and science together, I think, creates better outcomes for people uh, than just, you know, sitting in your silos. <laughs> so that's why I've always, you know, crossed disciplinary boundaries, talked to people in other disciplines, because I think that having those conversations or working with people across our disciplinary boundaries will create more meaningful impact. I mean, really, ultimately, you know, maybe citations aren't the proper way <laughs> to measure impact, but you want to make the world a better place. And you do that by learning from others and taking those ideas and synthesizing them to, to address the challenges that you're trying to understand. Yes, citations can be counted but good ideas typically cannot be counted. So right. in a world counting or arithmetic worlds, um, it's one thing, but more generally speaking, arithmetic doesn't work anymore. I mean, counting things is not that useful. They have machines that do all of that stuff. Right, right. And so how do you, you know, how do you identify good things, right? Or impactful things? Those are hard questions, right? Those are hard questions, and hopefully, hopefully we'll move forward with you know better, better ideas. So, yeah, excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Donna. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Oh, my pleasure. I really uh, look forward to seeing the conversation. I'll, I'll send you all the details once I put it together. Okay, great. Thank well, thank you for the invitation, Gil. It's good to meet you. Thank you. Great. Bye-bye. Bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. Dot com.